0: We're going to dive straight in today, uh, mainly because we've been looking through this book for a long time, and we have reached, if you like, the high point of the whole letter. We are nearly at the top, we're one or two strides away. If this was a music symphony, the first 11 chapters, you see, have provided little glimpses, musical motifs throughout, if you like, to build us to this point This is the crescendo in musical terms. The highest point being, as we just heard read, have a look down, (coughs) verses nine and ten of this chapter, where Paul very famously and paradoxically proclaims Can you just take the ring off? Is it right? Verse nine. But he that is God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now on the surface, that makes no sense whatsoever. Because they seem like complete opposites, don't they? Power and weakness. Think about the culture in which this is being written as well, the Corinthian culture. Very similar to London today. Weakness was to be hidden at all costs. This culture, though, had leached into the church, into Corinth, there. And the teachers who had kind of infiltrated the church were trying to undermine Paul and his ministry because he appeared weak in Corinthian eyes. Paul wasn't as eloquent as these teachers had come in. Paul looked on the surface as a, a kind of a weak man. He was unimpressive in comparison. And as a result, these teachers were implying that Paul, in his weakness, was therefore not as blessed by God. That he wasn't the real deal when it came to being an apostle. He wasn't to be listened to. And the message he proclaimed wasn't to be listened to as much as what they said. So you see, the whole of this book, 2 Corinthians, has been a defence of Paul's authentic ministry. This has been the recurring problem in Corinth, and it's been the main theme of this letter. I spent 18 months, not every week, but quite a lot, 18 months going through this Letter, dipping into it, and it's been such a joy. And thank you for very, you know, putting up with me and plodding through this uh, at such a slow pace. But you may have felt at times, as we've gone through, it, you know, the subject of kind of authentic ministry being defended in a first-century kind of church plant feels slightly removed from the reality of church life for us today in London. I hope I've been able to kind of adequately show that the dangers in the church in Corinth that they were facing are very similar to the dangers that we face today. Why? Firstly, I think because the pressures the church in Corinth faced from the culture around them are so similar to the pressures that we face today as a church. We live in a very Corinthian culture And the church in this country at times is dangerously Corinthian. Now, I've mentioned some very obvious and extreme examples, but the more subtle and nuanced dangers can very easily be missed. For example, when things are dominated by personality and pragmatism, It can become too easy to to do things because they seemingly work in our culture rather than than being faithful to God's word. That is a danger, isn't it? Now pragmatism and cultural success aren't always opposed to being faithful to God's word. But we must be careful which is prioritised, which leads the other. Secondly, I think, uh, why there's such a similarity is what they taught, these new teachers that have come into the church in Corinth, was attractive and popular then as it is now. What they taught, and we can only glean this from various things that Paul is defending against what they're teaching, uh, but what they seem to be of teaching was something we often call triumphalism. Uh, in this teaching, it's taught that following Jesus will lead to some kind of life of victory after victory after victory, of health and of wealth. All the blessings promised in heaven in the Bible, they would argue you, you can find them all now. If you want the more technical description, we call it over-realised eschatology. That is, it's promising too much. For this time now, before Christ returns. And what an attractive kind of teaching that is. It deceives people into thinking that, that, that life with faith is going to be victory after victory in a great time. All the time. And it's particularly attractive, dare I say it, to teachers. Hugely attractive here because you never have to say the hard things. You can gloss over the challenges of living for Christ. You can gloss over the challenges when I go and speak at CUs and I do and at some ILCUs. You know, when you're saying to these students, look, you're going to get berated for daring to open up Mark's gospel on cover. You might even get some thrown at you. The problem is gospel, the gospel is countercultural. Living for Christ is. Countercultural. Now, of course, life in Christ now is full of blessing, and we know that, and it's wonderful. But we wait patiently with eager expectation for much, much more to come. So, We're just steps away, literally off the top of the mountain of 2 Corinthians. It is just a few steps ahead of us. Paul has been defending his ministry. And if you look back into chapter 11, verse 16, you see that Paul has been delivering what is called his full speech. The Corinthian church had been bombarded with all this boasting from these new teachers. And it seemed that boasting was the method, that that was the only thing that they listened to now. And Paul loathed this practice But in his love for the church, he established uh, just a few years back, he now engages in what he considers this foolishness of boasting to defend himself and to defend the gospel that he proclaimed. And Paul outdid his teachers, if you look back in chapter 11, in every way according to the flesh. Remember, he looked at his ancestry uh, there and he was impeccable in every way beyond them. But after this initial boast in his strength, where did he very quickly turn? He began to boast in his weaknesses. And at the beginning of our passage today, do do cast your eyes down to it. You can sense his discomfort again in this practice of boasting. I must go on boasting. It's a necessity, he feels, in order to win back the hearts and the minds of the church in Corinth. And in verse 1, look where he goes. And it's literally to the jugular of these teachers. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord, he says. And so that's our first main point today. Paul's visions and revelations. Oh, it seems that these teachers in Corinth loved more than anything else. To speak about these ecstatic dreams and visions. They would say that God has revealed himself to them in this extraordinary ways. Visions and revelations are sometimes seen as God's way of speaking and revealing himself. Particularly in the Old Testament. That's the way we might view it, wouldn't we? But that's not the case. In the New Testament, for example, we looked just a couple of weeks ago at Jesus' transfiguration, didn't we? In Mark 9, a vision there, a revelation. The women who went to see Jesus in the tomb in Luke 24, uh, they reported seeing a vision of an angel. Stephen just before his death in Acts 7 saw a vision of the Son of Man in glory. Saul, before he became Paul on on Damascus Road, saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter receives visions from God in Acts 10 and Acts 12. John in Revelation 1. Paul, on numerous occasions, received in the latter chapters of Acts again and again and again. And and in evening he claimed to receive the true wisdom of God of the gospel by Revelation. How? When? Sorry, in Galatians 1 verse 12. Look with me, though, at verses 2 and 4, because... This is extraordinary because Paul is reserving his strongest defence of him being an apostle for this moment now. But note that he is going to speak in the third person. Notice he says, I know a man. And we know it's him because of what he says about it in verse 7 about his great revelations. So revelations come, visions come. This is a regular thing within this apostolic era, within the New Testament. And Paul is reserving, in a sense, his greatest vision, his greatest revelation for this moment in defending his ministry to the Corinthians oh, this it may at first seem arrogant. It's not like some celebrities who today speak of themselves in the third person. One of my favourite footballers at the moment is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's kind of nearing his retirement. He's the most arrogant man in the world, and he speaks of himself quite regularly. I know a great man called Zlatan, he will say in interviews, <laughs> um, who scored the most wonderful goal today. You know, it's all a bit of fun, but it's not that arrogance here. Paul is actually trying to deflect attention from himself. He's shown his discomfort in boasting, but now speaks in the third person. He's got to go here. The boasting is necessary. But this isn't arrogance. If these detracting teachers claim so much, Paul is about to reveal something that no one has ever come close to. Look at verse 2. No one's even heard about this before. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Things that no one is permitted to tell. This is Paul's, what we might call it, it's his own personal rapture. That is his own personal, unique experience, vision, revelation of heaven. And interestingly, Paul has never spoken about this before. He was taken up to paradise, is the word is We won't pick that in a moment. But uh, despite this, in the 14 years of ministry since this moment, he has never talked about this. 14 years ago, think where he was, he's he's just about to embark on his first missionary journey. He's probably stationed in either Tarsus or Antioch. It's about AD 42, and yet all this happens to him, this kind of ecstatic rapture to paradise, is kept secret for 14 years into this point. Now that tells us, I think, something hugely significant. Paul considers this experience, extraordinary though it is, he considers it unimportant for gospel ministry. It was very likely, very, very important for him personally, but not important when preaching the gospel to others. Now, when preaching, he, talk, he often talked about um, his vision of, of the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus again and again and again in his preaching, again in the later chapters of Acts, but... Why did he not speak here of this before? Well, we'll come to that. Let's dig in, though. Let's see what happened. Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, that third heaven language is a funny one, isn't it? Because uh, in the ancient world, the heavens were understood in kind of three, three kind of areas. This was commonplace in this kind of literature. The first heaven was the atmosphere around us. Yeah, we breathe and so on. The second heaven was stood as the starry heavens, the heavens above, the universe, the the visible universe that we see. And the third heaven was always understood as the invisible place of God. This was kind of like the the cosmology of the time. This is about as far as they went. Now, Paul doesn't know whether he's caught up in the body or, or not. God knows and he's okay to leave it there. Verse four, then he says, look, he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now that word paradise, that's that's interesting that that is here. It only only appears two other times in the whole of the New Testament. Once, uh, of course, with the criminal on the cross beside Jesus. He says, today you will be, be with me in paradise. Luke 24, 23, if you want to read that. Once also in Revelation 2, verse 7, where the faithful... Those who uh, keep going, if you like, with the Lord are assured of their place in paradise. Paul's been caught up, you see, two phrases. To the third heaven, which shows a, 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 an understood place, of the dwelling place of God, and into paradise, describing the, more the condition, the experience of being with the very presence of God. And look what Paul heard there, verse 4. Inexpressible things, private things for Paul's encouragement. Things he wasn't permitted by God to speak about, but things that would likely keep him going. You remember what we saw just in the previous chapter? Five times he'd received 40 lashes minus one. What was going to keep him going through that? Maybe this. Interesting, many scholars uh, down through the years have said that God didn't permit Paul to speak about this. Why? To protect him. Now, this vision uh, would sustain him personally. He was going to suffer terribly, but this would keep him through those times. But imagine if this happened to you or me. Yeah, if you if you went into the very presence of God in, in the in the third heaven and in paradise, what would you do? Just picture yourself for a moment. You sat here, boom. What would you do when you came back? You'd write a book, probably, wouldn't you? And then you'd go on every chat show sofa that you could possibly find. You'd probably start a church. Uh, at a conference going, an international ministry, the Third Heaven Paradise Ministries. Give you a name just to so give it a start. You'd make an absolute fortune if this happened to you and you could speak about this. You could be known worldwide. You see, Paul would have died with this experience. No one would have known a thing had not these teachers Began boasting of their own ecstatic experiences, their dreams and visions of God. And and Paul here, reluctantly so, with not a smattering of arrogance, is kind of smashing them out of the park. Because he felt it was necessary. But note how modest, how self-effacing he is. And we could have said so much more. We just get a little glimpse But rather he continues in the third person. Look down at verse 5 with me. I will boast about a man like that. But then I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. So no one will think of more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul here reminds the church that neither he or anyone in a teaching position should be judged according to spiritual experiences, visions, revelations. What matters most to Paul? It's how he lives. And what he says. No one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Godly sacrificial living and faithfulness. To God's word. Conduct and speech is everything. It's something I've been reminded of recently, very sadly, I think. I've been horrified over the last few weeks. I've had conversations, obviously, in leaving, uh, conversations with people saying, oh, you're looking at uh, people applying for jobs and so on. And people speak to me about the people they might recommend and so on. and, uh, And all they speak about... The only thing that people speak about is ability to preach. How eloquent, how powerful. They don't say that they're faithful. Now, I, I, I just make a generous assumption that they, that's a given. But no one speaks about godly, sacrificial life of a person. And in so doing, they convey a priority that suggests eloquence in preaching is the most important thing. And that is so Corinthian. Paul has experienced the greatest ever vision and revelation from God that we know of, uh, but nothing can replace conduct and speech, godly living and faithful preaching of the gospel. But Paul needed humbling. This was... Beyond all other experience, hence we see the thorn in his flesh. Look down, it'll be halfway through verse seven. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Second point, more briefly, Paul's thorn in his flesh. And note that this thorn came after his revelation to paradise, of paradise. and, And we don't know exactly what it was. This thorn could be a kind of a euphemism, an illustration. We just don't know. It could be opposition to his preaching of the gospel. That certainly was a reality in his life. Could have been some ailment. Some kind of point to the fact that it might be his poor vision. Depending on how you read Galatians six eleven, where Paul says he writes with such large letters. But that just could be him making an emphasis at that point. This thorn could be all sorts of things, but we can't be sure exactly. And that is really good, that we can't be sure exactly. Because if we knew exactly what it was, we'd probably read it and make ourselves exempt from the principle that it teaches. This thorn from God, whatever it was, it was exactly what Paul needed. God allowed, hear the language correctly, God allowed satan to torment paul but god knew it was necessary to stop paul becoming puffed up about himself or to become as he says in verse 7 conceited and notice isn't it remarkable how quickly the shift has been in just a couple of verses paul has been given this revelation from god beyond anything that anyone has ever experienced but also God has allowed Satan to provide a thorn in Paul's side. And God is ultimately sovereign over both. Now this thorn, this weakness of Paul was evidence that his detractors in Corinth used against him. It was evidence in, this, in their minds that Paul wasn't qualified for the task. Look, oh, look, he's a weak person. Look at this thorn in him. He's not qualified. The reality was, though, that Paul is unashamed about. He sees this thorn as proof of his superior revelations, of his superior authority. And he needed this thorn because so much had been revealed by God to him. Now, this is such a rebuke, isn't it, to the kind of teaching that was going around Corinth and is so prevalent today. To those who would consider things like weakness... And illness and disability and suffering as absence of God's blessing or a lack of faith in the individual. And that kind of teaching should make your blood boil because it is so dangerous. Paul's thorn was actually evidence of God's blessing. Quite the opposite of what was being taught by these teachers in Corinth. But Paul's no masochist here. He's not kind of looking for pain and looking for suffering. They were not to be enjoyed. It wasn't a sign in and of itself of being close to God. Look what he, did. he says in verse 8: Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul didn't want this. He didn't want this thorn, this suffering, whatever it was. Three times he pleaded, mirroring, of course, Jesus' pleading with God the Father. In the garden of Gethsemane, please take this cup from me. As he went to the cross. And there in the garden with Jesus, like here with Paul, the suffering was not taken away. God answers both Jesus and Paul. He answers their prayers by saying no. But the ultimate answer to his prayers is a positive, And it always is with God. And the explanation of that comes in these last two verses, the verses to which the whole letter has been leading to. And the progression to this point began right back in chapter 1. Again, why don't you just flip with me? Go, go back to chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul shares there the troubles that he's been facing. Look, he, he's despaired of life itself right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. In verse 9, they had received the sentence of death. But this happens so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. Right at the beginning of the letter, you get him expressing his weakness, but also pointing to what he's going to be relying on. Chapter 2, in telling others the gospel, chapter 2, verse 14, you see that they would know the aroma of Christ, which is the stench of death and suffering that ultimately leads to life. You see this tension? Then flip, flip over to chapter 4, verse 7 through to 12. That amazing little section there. Paul describes himself as being pressed on every side. Death was at work in him so that life might go out through the preaching of the gospel. Again, that tension. Death leading to life. Power and weakness. And then perhaps one of my favourite chapters, including my favourite verse in the Bible, I think. Chapter 6, verse 9. He's known yet regarded as unknown. Dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. And here it is, sorrowful, yet all, always rejoicing. This is authentic Christian ministry. This is authentic Christian living. Knowing our weakness, yet in and through that, knowing Jesus' power at work in us. So look with me at these last... A couple of verses in chapter 12, verses 9 to 10 in our section today. Let me tell you, I think understanding these verses can be probably the most liberating thing for life today. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's our last point, Paul's weakness and Christ's power. Power made perfect in weakness. And you have to ask yourself, where have you seen that before? Of course, on the cross. You see, this seems to be the way that God operates. If, if you want to, I could point you through to a, a thousand illustrations in the Old Testament as well. But this seems to be the way that God operates in his saving. Redemptive plans. See the crucifixion as you look at it. Just shouts out weakness doesn't it? But of course it leads to the resurrection. Which cries out victory. Power. Strength. The Lord responds to Paul's prayer. For his thorn to be taken away. And he responds how? By not taking the the suffering away. But Strengthening Paul, saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Whatever was to come of Paul, and we know it was not easy, God's grace was going to enable Paul in and through. And that is God's way. God's power then is displayed for all to see in and through our weakness. And hence, this is Paul's greatest boast, because this is the most authentic, authenticating defense of his ministry. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, he says, about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power might rest on me. He boasts in his weaknesses, his thorn. Why? So that Christ's power might, essentially, the language is actually to kind of pitch a tent in me. It's actually the language of the tabernacle here, that, 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 that word that rests on me there. Remember in John 1.14, for example, Jesus tabernacles himself amongst us. It's the same kind of family of words here. It's uniquely used here, only here in the New Testament. And literally, Paul is saying that through his weakness, through his suffering, Jesus is essentially pitching a tent with him in his weakness. And Paul finishes verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the important phrase there, of course, is for Christ's sake. Suffering isn't a virtuous thing. We don't seek it out. But for the sake of living for Christ and for the glory of Christ, we delight in. In weakness, because there we will know Christ's strength. Well, how does that work? One commentator, I put it on the screen, I think it's going to come up. It's a little bit of a mass equation. Uh, one commentator I was reading put it like this in kind of mathematical kind of terms. It's not the, one, the top one. My weakness plus Christ's strength equals my power. Rather, it is my weakness... With Christ pitching his tent in my life, displays Christ's power, gives glory to Christ. My friends, God doesn't need our perceived strengths. He wants our weaknesses, our suffering, our illnesses, our loneliness, our disability and every weakness that we know. Because there he comes and he pitches his tent in us to display his power in our weakness. And practically this means that when weakness does come into our lives, yes, it's okay to plead with God and say, please take this from me. That's right and that's okay. And to seek every bit of help that we possibly can From professionals and friends and whoever it may be. But if God says no. Remember that God will use that weakness in your life. And he will come and he will work in and through you. In his power. And for his glory. Many of you know that I spent uh, my summers reading biographies of great Christian heroes. Why is Naram Judson my hero? Why is Bill Borden my hero? David Brainard? They all died very young, having suffered terribly for the sake of Christ, and their lives were littered with pain and weakness and suffering and loss. But in each of their lives, though they would be mocked by the world around, each of their lives shone with the glory and the power of Christ that had come and pitched a tent in them. My friends, for the sake of Christ, give him your weaknesses. Acknowledge them. Speak of them. And allow him to be your strength in and through them for his glory. Because if we believe God's word, listen. For when I am weak, then... I am strong in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, particularly thinking of some of those students in the next three weeks in those missions in the universities very short distances from us now, who they will be trembling in their knees as they think about asking friends to come and hear the good news proclaimed. As they attempt to open up Mark's gospel with friends, Lord, in their weakness, please strengthen them, I pray. That though on the the outside they may seem as weak and frail in relation to the world around them, that you would come amongst them and you would strengthen and embolden them. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement of all that's going on in university campuses at the moment. I pray that we would be emboldened too, that despite our very many weaknesses, that we would know these truths, that when we are weak, we are strong in you, for you promised to come amongst us, to strengthen and embolden us, and you do that for your glory's sake. So please work in us, I pray, for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. <coughs> well,